I think what I wish evangelicals understood about Catholics doesn't have a whole lot to do with politics. It's just, you know, the Holy Spirit is actually here. <laughs> I think yeah. we, we really believe in Jesus. We really read the Bible. We treat the Bible with a lot of respect. It's a huge yeah. part of what the Mass is about. Welcome to the Depolarized Podcast. I'm Dan Koch. And I'm Ellen Morrow. And this week is part two of a two-part episode about non-evangelical Christians, specifically a Catholic, a Mennonite, and an Orthodox priest. If you haven't already listened to last week's episode, you should go listen to that first and then come back here. And can I just say, Ellen, a lot of good mail about last week's episode. A lot of feedback. Oh, yeah? Yeah. What are some highlights? Uh, just people... Uh, Saying, one... finally, you guys have your stuff together, and it's the end of the season. <laughs> you can say our shit together. You can say what you want to say. Well. I had one friend during... He told me later, but during Father Tom's story about the Stradivarius violin, just texted me the words, Father Tom. And then later said... I just did that to remind myself to tell you, but I, I was like, I said, yeah, Father Tom. That's a really good idea. I should do that. Well, yeah. Because there's been a lot of times where I'm like, oh, you know what? I need to ask somebody about how this is going with this thing, but I'm never going to remember it. It's not an appropriate time. I should just text them and be like, thing. Thing. And then the next oh, yeah. day when they text me back, what? Then I'll, <laughs> that's a great idea. Yeah, exactly. Idea. It's a mental bookmark. Sometimes I have Jaffrey send me texts that she has no idea what they mean. I'm like, I'll, I'll do it later. You know, just I, like I need a reminder. It's annoying for the other person, but it works. Yeah. So what stood out to you about last week's episode? Well, I think listening to someone who is Orthodox and someone who's Catholic, what I grew up believing that is so rigid and, well, we could get into workspace. Yeah, or empty work, ritual yeah. or whatever, yeah. But it's just so compassionate and so far removed from the the sterile law-based faith that I would expect from. Yeah. I mean, now not so much because now I'm, I'm getting it. Yeah. But But it's different than 15 years ago. I would have been really surprised to hear those conversations. Yeah. It's like sometimes people in the Catholic and Orthodox traditions actually fall in love with God. It does happen. Really kind and are doing good work. The thing that uh, I loved the most I just, I love being able to showcase some diversity within Christianity and which is kind of what you're saying. I just, I like to be a part of getting those voices out there. I was just actually at a party with your husband last night for a friend of ours and I was chatting with some guys and we were talking about creationism and evolution and, you know, it was good chat. And this one guy was like, you know, I, just to come clean, like, I don't really know what I think about it. I, I think it was that my know, husband. It was honest. not okay. your husband. No. <laughs> And I said to him, I was like, that's fine, man. I don't care if you're a six day creationist. What I care about is if you teach kids, it's either that way or, or Christianity's false. I see. You know what I mean? Like it's, you can believe whatever you want to believe. It doesn't matter. You could be Catholic. You could be Orthodox. You could be a fundamentalist, Protestant. Cool. It's just when we start telling people these false binaries, these false either ors. That's when I start to get. Creating what Christianity is. Is with non-essential issues that are not in any yeah. of the creeds, you know, they're totally peripheral issues. And so I think that getting voices out there, just hearing examples of people in other traditions is a way of sort of diffusing those false either or narratives. Yeah. So that was my favorite thing about it. That sounds like a really fun party. <laughs> Womp. 
so glad that I wasn't there. I, I told uh, I, I stayed told home our friend... and watched a, a crime documentary oh, about this guy good. that was so obsessed with his uh, his girlfriend, and she killed her parents, and he took the heat for it. Wow! And then he went to prison for it's life. Christ-like. Yeah. It's on topic. I told your I told our friend whose birthday it was. I said, "Hey, man." It did take me two hours before I started talking about theology with everybody, so I was pretty proud of myself. That's nice of you. Well, let's reintroduce our voters, just hear them give their names again for our own uh, familiarity. My name is Mary Kanegi Mitchell, and I'm 43 years old, and I'm Catholic. I'm Jennifer Delante. I'm a 55-year-old female who lives in Seattle, Washington, and I belong to the Mennonite denomination. My name is uh, Father Tom. Actually, my Greek name is Father Athanasios, which means Athanasius, uh, the, the one who does not die. So that's a kind of a nice name. But I'm 61 years old. So let's just dive right into politics and ask them why they did not vote for Donald Trump. It was not a hard decision for me, despite having some major misgivings about the Democratic Party. I've pretty much mostly vote for Democratic candidates. I feel like I tend to approach politics pragmatically. And so while I feel strongly that abortion isn't evil, I feel like that can't be the only issue that I look at. I have to kind of add everything up and look at what's going to create a society that I think is most fair, especially to the least of these and also, I think that weighs seriously our, our stewardship of creation, partly because I think creation is valuable in its own right, but also because when we don't care for the earth, the poor bear the brunt of um, cataclysmic weather events, for example. I always vote Democratic with a torn conscience because mm-hmm. of abortion. He made it <laughs> He made it a lot easier a lot than easier. it had been the last time. For your conscience, um, yeah. For my conscience. Why did you not vote for Trump? How do you know I didn't vote for Trump? <laughs> I guess I don't know that. And if you did vote for him, I am open to that. Well, listen, I, I, I remember when he came on the scene two and a half years ago, I told my wife, this guy's got something going on because he's talking about things like no one wants to talk about. Mm. And then the more I listened to him, I think the way he responded was really, for me, disrespectful, distasteful. I think the way he used his language, I felt like he was a bully. I was kind of hopeful with some of the ideas he had to present. And you mean you mean stuff about like trade and manufacturing, trade and manufacturing, just you know, the, and how government can slow down things, and and so yeah, those kind of things. And I I I really was hopeful, but I want him to do well. But when he's constantly showing to me how he disrespects people on the on the other side, it's, it's a difficult thing as a human being for me to respect him. I didn't vote for Donald Trump because I didn't feel he was worthy of the office. I felt that his lack of political experience, his verbal abusiveness, his denigration of many, many different kinds of people, his sexual abuse and molestation history, uh, I, I didn't feel that he was a suitable candidate. He always seemed to me to be somebody who had a lot of mental health issues, quite frankly. I mean, he would do a very unmennonite thing. He would go after people that he didn't want to be affiliated with, and he would offer to pay for le- any legal fees for people at his rallies who were 
getting violent with protesters who had shown up. Basically encouraging violence and Mennonite faith is strictly nonviolent. Yes. I've never been attracted to that. I grew up in a household that had a lot of domestic violence. Mm. I suffered a lot of physical and verbal abuse from one of my parents. My siblings suffered the same. And we, of course, were violent with each other because we didn't know anything else. That was our known world. Mm. And I knew from the pain that I would feel when the violence was inflicted upon me, that that was really not a solution, that my being disciplined that way did not correct me. It filled me with indignation and with rage and with pain and sorrow and shame and guilt. And none of those things are things that I consider to be good motivators for inspiring me to be a different and better person. When I have subsequently been in the world and seen this violence inflicted upon other people, it has been re-traumatizing for me. And I know to my bones, and in a very literal way, that violence is not a solution. And I am grateful that I found a faith community that embraces that. If you're okay with talking about this a little bit more, as someone who experienced violent abuse as a child, on a personal level, someone who's been on the other side of that, what was it like to experience those moments in the campaign? Donald Trump's pronouncements come, in my opinion, out of a deeply unconscious place. Um, To me, most of his statements were about a lot of bravado and a lot of, trust me, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to make it all okay. We're going to cut good deals without any real specifics. It troubled me deeply as I would hear him make fun of people who had disabilities, as I would hear him describe Latinos as violent murderers and rapists, as I would just hear these things that he was saying that were that in a very negative populist sort of way were appealing to our basis instincts. Many things that he said were very traumatizing for me. Because of my history, I, I also am a survivor of sexual abuse and incest from several years of my childhood. To, to, to hear him say these things was re-traumatizing. To, to always be threatening violence and mayhem as a, as a corrective was very familiar territory for me. Hmm. To then hear the Hollywood Access tape where he basically described sexual molestation was also triggering, of course, because of my, my history around that. And I thought, this campaign is Hillary Clinton's to lose. <laughs> this guy is so completely unsuited for being president. He's not what our nation needs. And I was pretty confident that there was no way that he could win. And I remember President Obama essentially saying the same thing, saying, I have faith in the American people. And I was very disappointed that 80% of evangelicals voted for Trump. I was very disappointed that 53% of white women and 63% of white men 
voted for Donald Trump, that our racial group was the one and only racial group that voted for him across a majority of people. That was, that was very disappointing for me. And as an abuse survivor across several different levels of, of abuse and so forth, it, it did not bode well for me. I thought, gosh, this is sort of like what my environment was like when I was growing up as a kid, to have somebody who was so deeply unconscious and so mentally ill and so violent was a, a very long burden to bear until I got to adulthood. Lots to unpack here, Ellen. Yeah, that's tough to listen to. Let's start with Jennifer. I mean, there's not a lot you can say, you know, her experience is her experience and it's obviously coloring the way that she sees this in a very understandable way. Not not that I even think it's irrational. It's just like, I'm not really sure what I can add to that. Well, I think when we got to the end there, when she was talking about those statistics, it reminded me that 80% of evangelicals whose faith claims to care for those who have been hurt, mm-hmm. it's it almost doesn't match up to me that those are the same people that condone or maybe are kind of tone deaf to things, issues like sexually, sexual abuse. Well, you know, there's obviously, you know, we're back to kind of the central question of this season, which, which is, you know, how is this possible or whatever? And a lot of it is they're not paying attention to the same media sources. I mean, a lot of it is, but as a, as a human being, as an adult, as an evangelical listening to Donald Trump talk, whether it be the Access Hollywood tapes or, you know, during one of the debates or whatever, I think many women felt in their gut like unsafe, 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 like yeah. red flag, red flag. And it's surprising to me to know that, you know, so many women supported him. It's, strange, it's just strange to me. It's strange. It, what you're talking about is is kind of what I heard I heard in Father Tom's answer, which was that. Father Tom, the way I would put it is, Tom has become the kind of person that can't really countenance the kind of person Trump is. Does that make sense? Where Tom is obviously a loving and gentle man, and he just, he hoped, he hoped for the political promise of a candidate like Trump. Some of the, I think, you know, Tom maybe likes some of his trade ideas and, you know, whatever. And then he's like, oh, I can't actually do this. This is disgusting yeah yeah. and i there's no way i can pretend that it's not i thought that was interesting yeah i mean i think for a lot of people there was a real battle because in the beginning i think people thought well you know donald trump has always been we know who he is and he's a rich guy so he must be a really smart guy and he's okay well you know maybe we haven't given him enough you're saying very early yeah Yeah. very early and i think people like you know what yeah he is saying a lot of good stuff i'm surprised by donald trump because i all all I know of him is The Apprentice or whatever. Yeah. And so I think that for a lot of people, they probably had that same battle within. But yeah, like when, when we talk about getting up to the election and having all the debates and, you know, all this, having a lot of time to listen to him speak and see how he treats people, you know, one thing that Tom and Jennifer seem to share is like they became allergic to that kind of a person. And, you know, there's there's still an argument that you could make of like, none of that matters. Right. It's all about policies or whatever. I mean, I don't buy that argument, but it is an argument. It is a great argument. And, but ultimately I think it's like, regardless of that person has great policies, I don't know if I can cast my vote to support someone that I, 
I have like an in, integral, is integral a word? Integral. That doesn't seem right. You have a my ingrained. In, my integrity. Oh, yeah. No, not integral. That's yeah. not yeah. a word. That's yeah. kind of what I felt, but let's go with it. And that's why I didn't vote. Ultimately, hmm. was because I can't. I you have put to, your weight behind. I that. have to live with this, knowing because if you know everything goes to shit, which maybe would have happened both ways, who knows? Maybe I just wasn't really comfortable with that. Uh, I want to say one thing about Mary's answer because I think it kind of got lost in the shuffle, mostly because Jennifer's answer is so weighty and so autobiographical. But Mary gave this really clear explanation, maybe the clearest that we've heard from anybody who's a Christian on the political left about not just abortion, but oh, yes. environment. Yep. And I when, loved what she you know, said about um, if we if we don't take care of the planet, it's the poor who have yeah, to deal poor, with it. Yeah, like I, I live on a hill in Seattle. I'm fine, right? Puerto in Rico. My, right, right. I just, I wanted to highlight that because I thought that was, yeah, I was I really kind that. of struck by that. So let's jump back in with Mary, and then we're going to hear another long clip from Jennifer. This is our Jennifer episode. We're really, we're getting to know her finally, because Jennifer's answer to this question went in this fascinating direction that I totally didn't anticipate, and that I think really shines a light on her Christian faith and life experience. But we'll start with Mary. So if another Christian said to you, look, what's the big deal about voting for Trump? Why is this a problem? Why are other Christians upset? How would you answer that question? I feel like I see Trump appealing to the worst parts of us. I think the parts of us that are most fearful about our material prosperity, the parts of us that see economics as a zero-sum game, that say that your good is always my loss. And I feel like, you know, that's, that's not the vision of the kingdom of God, and I'm... I have no illusion that we can replicate the kingdom of God here on earth, but I think, I think you know, when we work together to create a society, we should try. If another Christian said to you, hey, what's the big idea? If one of those 81% of white evangelicals said to you, yeah, I mean, so I voted for Trump, like, why is that a problem? How would you answer that question? I would say that's not a problem. You're entitled to vote for whomever you choose to vote for. It's not the choice I made, and it's not the choice I would ever make, because I know what it's like to be on the receiving end of violence and intrusion that I do not want. And somebody who is so brazenly fine with that dismisses it as locker room talk and then turns around and calls NFL football players sons of bitches which insults not only the players, but their mothers as well. I don't really have anything to say to people in a corrective sort of manner. I, people can do whatever they want to do, but I, I think that that goes to a very deeply unconscious part of our society. There are many white people in our society who are deeply unconscious about what this society is like for people who are not white and who are not Protestant, who, who have not had this entire system set up for them so that they can do things in this society with a lot of hard work and with a lot of determination. But there are many other people that no matter how much hard work and no, no matter how much determination they have employed, they do not have the same 
opportunities. They do not have the same privileges. They do not have the same benefits. And I think that a lot of white people are deeply unconscious about that. And I think that that is mainly the segment of population that on a majority basis voted for Donald Trump. Why do you think that so much of white America is unaware of the sort of the privilege that they have? I think that the unawareness stems out of the lack of interconnection with other groups. I grew up in the state of Oregon, which is overwhelmingly white, and didn't really have any interaction with other groups other than just on a very nominal basis, just very few numbers of Hispanic students, very few numbers of Asian students, and next to no African-American students. There was a history behind all this that I was not aware of until I started learning about it, actually, after college. And my, my formal education from first grade to bachelor's degree in the state of Oregon was about my story. It was about the pioneers and their intrepid moving out to this new territory and taming the wild and so forth. Yeah. It wasn't about the displacement of the people who were already here. It wasn't about the school that was built for Native Americans in the Salem area where I grew up and the trauma that the kids went through who were being stripped of their cultural background and language and homes and families. It wasn't about... African-Americans and the fact that there were some who were brought to the state of Oregon and who were enslaved. And in fact, in the town that I lived in, where I graduated from high school, there was actually a story of a former slave who sued his former owner for custody of his children back before Oregon became a state. That lawsuit was filed in the county courthouse of my hometown. Hmm. And I didn't learn about it until I read a book about it a few years ago. Now, for someone who received her formal education in that county for the majority of my education, that's why I think white people don't know, because I don't think we're really actually taught it. Why aren't we taught it, then, to go back a step? We aren't taught it because our narrative about us being the brave and intrepid pioneers, of which my ancestors are many. My, my ancestors settled Oregon and Washington in the 1850s and 1860s. They were, in fact, brave people. That's, they were, not, tr- that's not false. They were, they were brave, but that's the only story we heard. Right. We didn't hear right. what it was like for the Native Americans seeing these people pulling up in the ships and on, and on the wagon trains and so forth. We didn't know what it, about these people who were brought to Oregon Territory. And from the moment they stepped into the territory, they were actually free because the territories were free. But they mm. remained enslaved because they did not know. And it certainly was not communicated to them by the people who mm. had owned them that they were free. So, for example, the gentleman who sued his former owner, he was enslaved by him for six years after coming to Oregon Territory. And even then could not get his four children away from his owner because his owner said, no, I've fed them and supported them all this time. I should be able to get some work out of them. One of them ended up dying while they, he, they were in his custody. So we, we aren't hearing the full story. We aren't hearing the fullness of who we yeah. actually are as a nation. We aren't hearing these incredible stories. When I started learning about African-American history, that's when my real education started. Because I started learning this very inspiring story about people who 
somehow have survived against all possible odds, beginning with enslavement upon arriving here, and somehow you know, had, have, have been able to find a foothold in a society that has been very hostile to them and violent to them from day one. have a lot of stuff I'd like to talk about from those two clips. Okay, go for it. Do you have anything? We, we can start with you. Well, I mean, I just always think it's so powerful when people take it upon themselves to educate themselves. And I, I think I can say this as a white person, but I love it when people get woke. That <laughs> sounds so dumb when I say I it. I don't. I'm not going to be the one to but adjudicate Jennifer, whether or not you can say that. I didn't know that like a Mennonite could be so woke. You also thought, last week, you thought that Mennonites were basically Amish people. So. Well, I still haven't met her, and technically, I still imagine her wearing a bonnet. You do? But she Really? Could, but could, she could be woke and be wearing a bonnet. That's what's so cool about- bonneted and woke. That's what's so cool. Yeah, she's, as I said, she wears regular clothes, lives in Seattle. <laughs> so, okay, I have a bunch of stuff here. Let's, I want to start by going back to Mary, and again, Mary's- Mary's just shooting these compact missiles of goodness that then get lost in this like fantastic story you, that Jennifer has to tell. I want to interject. I forgot to ask you this last week. When you were interviewing Mary, did you ask her, did, did, did you know? <laughs> Mary, did you know? <laughs> I didn't ask her that. Uh, she is talking about this. She talked about this zero sum mentality that Trump brings out this kind of your oh, gain is my loss. Right. And this is actually something that David Brooks talks about a lot in regard to Trump. This is kind of the way that Brooks says that Trump sees the world. He sees trade as, you know, winner, win slash lose. It's only there's no such thing as a trade policy in which both countries do better. We can't all do well. Someone has to lose. Right. And so I thought that was interesting because she saw that in ourselves. But it is also kind of the way that Trump sees the world, according to a guy that I I respect. Not his marriage, because if you (laughs) have that worldview... What's your marriage like? It is. It's What's his your third marriage. We can like? infer what we will from that fact. So, okay. I have four different things here about Jennifer's response, which was was weighty. And there's a lot in there. The first one is, it reminded me that learning history has changed a lot of my own views. When I learn more about what happened in the past, I do rethink my current positions on things. Yeah. I'll just give one and example. There's never, you've never learned everything you can learn. Well, of Isn't course that not. exciting? In fact, the older I get, the more I realize like what a tiny, tiny portion of the world I will get to learn about. But for instance, when I learned from, I believe it was Jamar Tisby, and I don't remember if we've played this clip already or if it's going to be in the next season, but it's an interview I did with him. When I learned that most African-American Protestant denominations started because the white denominations would not let the black men be ordained, I changed my mind about what I thought of black Protestant churches. I I had more naively thought they have like this kind of weird, seems like a shallow theology and they really emotional and they're, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And and then like I started listening to them and then learning that fact, I was like, they, they weren't even allowed in these seminaries. They had to sort of start their Their own own, thing. And I, I, I've, I don't have the same sort of view of the shallowness of the theology, but in terms of how whatever, how different it is, say, from the classic American Protestant denominations and, you know, all those, every Ivy League school was started by a predominantly white Protestant denomination, for instance, they didn't have access to those schools. 
They didn't have access to becoming ordained in those traditions with those teachers, with those pastors to mentor them. They had to start their own thing. That actually changed my thinking about those groups of That's people awesome. to learn the history. Number two, how crazy is it that story about slave masters getting to Oregon territories where officially, legally, their slaves are free, not telling them they're free? Like, we're going to move from Mississippi to Oregon, and I'm just going to never tell you that once we get there, how I don't own to you. Know? They don't have any access to any sort of information. I know. It's just like, that's like so cruel. Well, I'll step in here and say that those people were slave owners, Dan. So it's not surprising <laughs> that they did something like that. That's true. Okay. That, yeah, fair point. Number three, I, this is kind of a bigger question and I don't, I'm even just kind of feeling for it as I ask you, but it's, it's something that's been coming up a lot recently. I wonder, you, you know that I deeply respect in general, a conservative political view of the world. And I have no problem with political conservatives. There is a kind of cultural conservative right now in America that's like very touchy about the flag, you know, like very easily offended about certain questions of patriotism and, and, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever, like very allergic to black NFL players. Patriot Christian. Yeah. Yeah. Like how, well, Christian or not actually this question, how much of that sort of, it's to, to use their language against them. It's like a snowflake patriotism, like a, you know, trick, like easily triggered or whatever. How much of that is about the difficulty of really considering that the United States has not always been the good guys. That's got to be a painful thing, especially for people who are raised in a culture of like flags and military salutes and tons of military members well, in their Dan, family. If you ignore things, they don't exist. Well, okay. But I mean, psychologically, if they belong to a tribe and they feel better when they believe certain things about their tribe, then they're going to be really quick to rebuke if someone shows them a mirror, you know what I mean? Right. So, I mean, there's kind of the basic psychological truth that whenever you present someone with like very counter evidence, like our, our first, everybody, myself included, our first response is to be, to like discount that evidence. I understand the kind of basic psychological truth that when you present someone with like a totally different view Their first instinct is to reduce that evidence, deflect it. I mean, I do this. Everybody does this. I'm asking a more kind of broad question about the source of that deflection for this particular group of of Americans. And I, I, it's, it's crazy. Like when I was 18, I would just like eat up stories about America being the bad guy. You know, like I wanted, I was punk rock and I wanted to believe that, yeah, Howard Zinn's, you know, people's history of the United States, like. I was like a flaming liberal at 18, 19. I really was anti-government and like, whatever. I was like a punk kid. And you know, one of those kids that wanted to be an anarchist, but didn't really think it through. Yeah. 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 And how that would work. Yeah. uh, And I, now as I sit in my house with my mortgage, I'm grateful for capitalism, but that's not true of me anymore. I don't, I'm not, I don't like want, I don't glory in the stories of like unveiling the, the history of us killing the native Americans. Like I don't, I don't have that kind of perverse pleasure, but I did go through a period of time where I learned a lot of those stories. And how was that on your own accord or how did you 
punk bands. I don't know. Okay, like reading interviews with, yeah. Because you didn't learn that from I didn't learn that in my Christian high school. No. But, uh, you know, I had like some, I had teachers who would have been fine with that. Like, you know, I, I didn't grow up fundamentalist gratefully, but so I don't know. That's, I don't, I don't have an answer to that. I don't know if you have an answer to that. I just, it's something I've been kicking around. I think it's fear based. I think it's fear. But there's something particular about the fear that we could have been wrong and like deeply wrong. People are really afraid of being wrong. Yeah. It's just interesting. When it applies to your country. And just like we were talking about how there's a certain personality type that tends to be more conservative, Mm -hmm. I think that maybe there's something to it that that personality type tends to be more fear-driven. Not not consciously, but whereas maybe someone that's more quote-unquote liberal is quick to say, yeah, I'm wrong. Well, maybe that's not right. I don't know. I think that's, I think you're I'm, wrong. I'm about thinking that. out loud, but I'm getting somewhere and I agree with it. <laughs> I don't think I agree with that analysis of yours, but that's fine. Uh, the f- No, what I'm saying is that more liberal Americans are quick to be okay with the fact that America is not always the good guy, I guess. And there's maybe right. there's something to it as far as personality types and things like that. That's what I want. Yeah. To say. And there could be, I mean, you know, if you're, if you're the one who's calling for more open borders, like you're going to use the stories of, you know, people being ripped from their parents at the border, kids being, I mean, like, and then you're going to, if you share that story, you're aware of the fact that a child is being ripped from their parents. I mean, there's sort of like yeah. a, it, there's a part and parcel of it. The last thing I want to say this is something that has been kicking around in my brain since I interviewed Jennifer, you know, like nine months ago or whatever. She says, when I looked into the history of African-Americans, I found a people that actually I was like against all odds, like they have succeeded. It's incredible. It's it's this perspective shift that is really, I think, only beginning to happen in my head. But I'm interested in it. I don't think that I have arrived and I don't know what the final place will be, but I, that that has stuck with me for nine months, and I, I just wanted to highlight it. You're starting to get woke. Well, I will not claim that for myself. Does your lack of support for Trump, maybe as opposed to for the GOP, derive from your Christian faith, or is it unrelated? you know, how I think about anything that matters connects to my Christian faith. But I, do, I, I don't think I thought about my Christianity more this cycle than I do in other cycles. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd also like to say that, I mean, I laughed when I said I only really know a handful of Trump voters, but I think that's pretty shameful and embarrassing. I was talking to my brother who lives in Boston and is is very liberal at dinner the other night and he said something Mark, my my husband said something like well, you know, what can we do? and my my brother said, well, we can take to the streets and I was like we could take to the streets with all of our neighbors who believe exactly as we do and who don't know any Trump voters either like, we'd have to move to Nebraska and take to the streets There's a Greek word called philotimo, love of honor uh, Philos is friend and Timi is honor. Uh, it's a very complex word. It's uh, wanting the best for the other, self-sacrificing, love, integrity. You know, I, I really want to look at the best of a human being and just somehow when I can consistently see the tweets and how he responds to people and really, in a, for me, in a not very respectful way. And I know he's had a lot of difficulty with the media, but part of me feels he's brought it on himself. And it's a hard thing trying to 
love through that. I, I'm trying to figure out the differences between discernment and judgment. Mm. I don't want to judge him because he's got a story and why he does what he does, but sure. discerning uh, his actions and his words has been difficult for me to, to watch and make sense of. I love what Mary said about taking it to the streets. It's exactly <laughs> why I feel like not getting politically active. In Seattle. In Seattle. Hmm. I mean, me and everyone, it doesn't make a difference. That's not true. Some things can make a difference, but, you know. It's really about having the discernment to figure out which local initiatives or which local candidates will make a difference and then being willing to put the time in for that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, especially when you have a a young child, it's probably not the easiest time to do that work. Although, you know, I got so emotional over the whole, you know, child thing. Yeah, I was like, I could totally bring Phoebe. This could be our protest. I just pictured her on my shoulders holding a sign that said something really like epic and I would just be crying and yelling. It was just beautiful. And then I went to bed. Uh, that that future is still available to I you. Know. But see, the seed was planted. Um, I'll just say one thing about Father Tom and that is I just would like to become like him. Oh, man. I just want to like I'm I'm really starved for older men in my life that I can look up to, especially in Seattle, which is really a kind of a young person city, the closer you get to downtown, especially. Yeah, yeah. And even our church has very few people over 55. And uh, I just like, I hear, I play these back from Father Tom and I'm like, how do I become like that guy? You like, how do I out, just hang out with him more? Yeah. Also, was he wearing a rope? You know how I, when I no, don't he had see street these clothes. people, I just imagine things. They do I wear imagine... pretty crazy stuff in the in the liturgy. Like the Eastern Orthodox priests are decked out. Are they the yeah. one with the crazy hat from the the Pope guy from uh, uh, or the priest from Russia? No, uh, Princess Bride. <laughs> I don't know if they're wearing, I don't know. Maybe one of them has the hat. I've, I've only been to a handful of. It's like of, red velvet pointy hat. You know what I'm talking about? Marriage. <laughs> that guy. Uh, I, I don't think we can they move wear on. that. We can move on. <laughs> I don't think they wear that. I haven't been to very many Orthodox services though. So we'll leave that open. So now we're going to ask our three voters the same question. But we're going to linger with Father Tom because I think he has an interesting perspective on this question. Here's Jennifer. How overtly political is your church environment? We're very involved with social justice movements, and we show up at protests and we get out and we march. We were some of the many, many millions of people who marched worldwide in the in the run-up to the Iraq war in protest of, of that happening. We're a very engaged congregation around social justice issues. Catholic preaching tends to be, when it's done right, and I think it's usually done this way, pretty grounded in whatever the, the readings from the Bible were that week. Right, yeah. So the, a Catholic preacher doesn't sort of have the freedom to just pick a current event and start there. Sermon series, yeah. Yeah, they don't don't have sermon series. They just, they have the lectionary, which takes you through the gospels, a gospel over the course of the year. Right. And so the homily always just begins and ends with the gospel reading. So there are three readings. There's a reading from the Old Testament. Well, and then there's a song response from the Psalms. Then there's a reading from the New Testament outside the gospel, so usually a letter. 
And then there's the gospel reading that's sort of the most important reading and we all stand up and sing Alleluia and then we listen to the gospel and then we sit down and there's the homily. I would say Father Ryan is never slow to point out kind of God's preferential option for the poor. So the idea that the kingdom of heaven is an upside down kingdom where, well, it's Christmas now, but so... I keep thinking of the hymn, the time has come to raise the poor and cast away the proud, which isn't in the Bible, but the Bible does have, you know, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And he's shown the strength of his arm. He's given good things to the poor and sent the rich empty away. I mean, the Gospels are not shy about, about a sort of political vision that is about overturning power. I would say it's a biblically grounded social gospel. How overtly political is your is your church environment here? You know, I, I try to keep politics out. I don't preach politics. I I, um, I was going to mention a story. In, in our service, we pray for all civil authorities. We pray for the president. One day I was talking to a friend who was living in, in Alabama, and we were talking about the old days where just it was just Greek, and the only English was, So the only English in that particular time was, the word named Lyndon B. Johnson. And in, my, in our church, I've always just said the president, so I decided back then to use the president's name. And back then it was Obama. It was four weeks into his administration. And I started using his name. And we pray for President Obama and all civil authorities. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Well, this one particular guy was there for three weeks before I used his name. I never used Bush's name. Yeah. So he says, I want to talk to you. I came in here. I thought he was going to say... Gosh, he had a good sermon, but what he did, he sat where you are sitting right now, and he said, well, I know what political affiliation you are. I said, what do you mean? So, well, you never used Bush's name, now you're using Obama. And I started laughing. I said, oh, let me tell you the story. And I said, this is the story, and from now on until I stop, I'm going to use whoever the president's name is. And I started using Trump's name now. But And then I go to him, I said, so let me ask you, you've been in this church before I used Obama's name, and he was in office four weeks before I used his name. I said to him, this is really striking, I said, who, who are you praying for? Obama was in office, but I didn't use a specific name. And he looked at me and he says, well, I, I guess I should have been praying for him. He was the president. Yeah, he was it's the president. funny how I, was, I just said the president, I use his name, and you become offended. And he goes, well, it's kind of hard because I hate him. I said, well, that's the beauty of our church. We're invited to love and try to support and pray for the people we you don't appreciate or like or hate. It strikes me that that is another difference maybe between any of the high liturgy churches, Orthodox, Catholic, um, Anglican, Episcopal, and evangelicalism is that, you know, <laughs> your congregant saying, I hate him. This is going to be very hard to pray for him. Uh, that's kind of the beauty of the old church traditions is you don't you don't get off you don't the get hook. To, you don't get to choose. But if your yeah. pastor is just determining what everyone will say every week, there isn't that kind of check and balance right. in the weekly service. Right. Right. And uh, so that's a that is a difference. It's not just to the Eastern Church, but it is a difference right. between the high church the traditions. Churches, yeah. yeah, yeah. Something that has a long history in America, mm-hmm. especially on the political right, that has kind of come up again in, in a lot of the rhetoric. <laughs> Um, surrounding Trump, specifically by like Falwell and Franklin Graham, maybe even James Dobson, certainly in the Roy Moore campaign and in his career, is this Christian nationalism, this idea that Christianity and America's interests are somehow intertwined, somehow they're coextensive. My gut is that the Orthodox faith would push back against that quite a bit. 
So if someone were to argue to you, what's good for America is godly, um, or America is the country that's supposed to bring God to the rest of the world such that we can think of them as one and the same thing or on the same team. How does an Orthodox person respond to that kind of a claim? That's a hard question, Dan. I, I, yeah, it's a good one. It's uh, a really good one. <laughs> I think it goes back to, you know, how do we continue to live our own life in peace and really invite people to walk alongside that peace? I don't know this country really is really Christian. What did you think about that, Ellen? There was a lot in there. Yeah, I was just thinking about the idea of praying for the president and how I hope the people that are having, you know, Trump Bible studies, which I looked up the other day. I, I don't know where I was on the internet, but it was a deep, dark black hole. I know where you were psychologically. <laughs> To do that. But I hope that the same people that are, you know, having prayer breakfasts and praying for Donald Trump, I hope that they were also praying for Obama. And I had an almost opposite thought in terms of where my mind went with that. I realized that, like, it would probably do me well to have to pray for Trump every week. Like the, the story of the, the guy and the parishioner in his church who's like, I hate Obama. And like, it was hard for him to pray for Obama. Like... I don't know that I hate Trump, but my disgust for toward him is strong. I mean, like someone would probably say you hate him if they knew. I don't I wouldn't say that, but I but maybe I do. And I've thought about that. Like, I have to be honest with myself about that. He is my president. I do have to respect the office. And as a Christian, I should be praying for him. I should pray that the country does well under him. And if it does, it will reflect well on him. I should want good things for Americans, even if it means a win for my, a political win for my enemy. Or but whatever. what about praying for him as a man who's probably under a lot of stress and who is hated by half the country and maybe half the world? Yeah. I mean, you I know, can, that's the yeah. humility part. Cause you're just talking about praying for him that he does well he so does you well. can do, do well. Well, no, or, or other people or whatever. I mean, just yeah. so the nation does well. Yeah. That's another but, level but of that's, like that, him as a that person. That idea is like, you don't care if he's well, as long as like the poor are well, which his value has equal or his life yeah. has equal value than somebody should, somebody should write a book for liberal Christians called like you're not doing it right if you're not, if you don't love Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. As a no, person. I think that there's no, a lot there. Because you're not actually different. being compassionate and loving if you can't lo- be loving and compassionate towards the worst of them. Well, okay. So, of That's course, not everybody is going to think he's the worst of them. There are people who think that coverage is very unfair and, and all of that. But, but yeah, and it's true. I mean, it's like, well, you're, you're not being perfectly Christ-like anyway. Well, you're, I think about the those uh, pastors and priests who are in prison ministry Hmm. and how, what a compassionate heart change that they had to maybe go through to be able to sit with these rapists and, and murderers to want them so much to be in the presence of God. Like that is the shit that we need. Yeah. One more thing about father Tom's response at the very end. One of the things that last week, I got a lot of people writing to me about was, you know, 
acquire the spirit of peace and a thousand souls will be saved. The sort of orthodox approach to evangelism as being different, like just become like Christ, that's evangelism. And like people will ask you. And he, he said a kind of a similar thing or anyway that that was really in league with that of like, you know, what do you do in this hard situation? You just, you just invite people to walk with you. Yeah. And you just try and reflect Christ. It's kind of like, it's kind of annoying that the orthodox answer to every difficult question is like, I don't know, Dan, I don't know who gets to be saved. Just, just, just love be people. like, keep on loving just them. be like Jesus. Dan, I want something <laughs> easier well, than that. That's why Not you need to hang it. out with Father Tom more, I think. I know, I do. I was watching Queer Eye today. It's season two. I'm binging. And there's this episode when the guys are on their way to do this, you know, big makeover. And they're, I don't know what to call their person, their patient. Their, cl- their, <laughs> their whatever, client, their client, the client, guest. Yeah. Um, is a transgender man. And it was interesting on the way there, Tan, my favorite guy, he's the style guy. He's the, I think he's Pakistani. He's just like super calm and chill and Mm -hmm. I just like him a lot. And he's got a British accent. So like, he's just like, what's not to love. Yeah, exactly. But he was saying, you know, I think that a lot of people that are not in, you know, the LGBTQ community, kind of group us all together. So they assume like all gay people and trans people, they're all kind of in a big group and they all know each other. Yeah. And Tan said, I've never even met a transgender person before. Hmm. And he's in his thirties. He's been married to a man for seven years. And it was really interesting to me to think I totally, I just assume that if you met a gay man in his 30s, that he probably would have a couple transgender friends, you know. But it just made me think about all other facets of life. It's, yeah, other it's groups like that we do. If I, you know, if if we think about certain minorities, well, they all must know each other. Or it's, and I don't, and I'm not embarrassed to say this now because I know how true it is for most everybody. Hmm. But I think that when I'm thinking about like people of different faiths, I think that we kind of, if they're not us, we group them all together. When there's just listening to Jennifer and Father Tom and Mary, it's like everyone is so diverse within their faith, and it's so crucial to listen to these these people. Well, it's one of the reasons I actually wanted to separate Jack and Debbie out into their own episode with Trip because I was like, well, I've got these five voters, but four different faith traditions, and they're quite different. Very different. And it would be it's it was getting kind of jumbly in my head to try and put them in one episode. Yeah. At, in, but if which you were just to your just point. list them on paper, you'd be like, Oh, they probably all hang out together. Yeah. yeah it's, it's maybe I did exactly what you're talking about of like, Oh, I'll just interview some non evangelicals. Yeah, they're all the no big same. Deal. We'll put them in a group. They all look the same. <laughs> they all wear bonnets. And yeah. Robes. And we, and we did see that with the, with the Christians of color as well. I mean, like, you know, Candace's experience of being raised Korean American was really different than, Justin's experience of being black in yeah, Denver, yeah. which was really different than Rachel's experience of being half Panamanian and kind of passing for white sometimes. And, you know, so. And they didn't all know each other. <laughs> and, and would you know it, they they weren't already friends. Ellen, this is like, you know, if you're listening to NPR, they get into the end of the telethon season where they interrupt like every five minutes to ask for money. At the desperate part. Yeah, this is so this is that time. This is the last episode of this season. It's the last begging for Patreon money. And I'm going to go ahead and say, a la last week, 
there might be a Patreon Saint shirt in the works. I've thought about that. I think it's a great idea. I think it's kind of a good idea. It was my idea. But I think, I think it's, it's a great idea. I think it's a pretty good idea. So we'll see about that. But anyway, if you don't know what I'm talking about, here's what I'm talking about. Some people give some monthly money to me to make this show. Not me. Not Dan. Ellen. I don't actually get to keep any of it. It all it goes back in the show. But I just want everyone to know, if you don't like me, don't worry about it. You're not. Because I don't see a dime. <laughs> if you're listening and you're like, man, I would love to support the show, but I don't want Ellen to get 50 cents of every dollar. I've a little hate mail and I just want to tell those people. Don't worry about it. You have not. I'm gotten, doing this pro bono. You've gotten very little hate mail, but it was it was public on a the little Facebook hate page. mail is a plenty for a little is enough. enough. Yeah. Anyway, so I am going to continue working on podcasts as soon as this is wrapped. I'm I'm already working on season three of Depolarize and I'm working on a show. I it might be too early to announce this, but it's called You Have Permission. I think it's going to be out this fall. I have just I'm weird. I'm weird about announcing because I haven't recorded much for it, but a lot of it's written. Anyway, that's... I want my own podcast. That's coming. You, you're free. In fact, Matt Carter tried to get you to producer? start one. I will yeah, be your producer well. if you want. Anyway, so uh, if you guys want to donate monthly, it would be awesome. It's going to these shows. I'm not taking time off like last summer where I actually refunded money for a couple months and I paused it for a couple months. I'm, I'm going to keep working. So if you want to support the work that I'm doing, the work that Ellen and I are doing, you can go to depolarizedpodcast.com and click become a patron or patreon.com slash depolarized. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Slash Dan is a liberal. <laughs> slash Dan's a flaming liberal. And then the other thing is, please join my email list and I'll let you know about these projects. New season of Depolarized, new Reconstruct episodes, you have permission, etc. Dancokewords.com, my K-O-C-H. last name. K-O-C-H. K-O-C-H is my last name. Or if you want to tell Siri to call Dan or email Dan, just say Koch. Koch, yeah. That's what's and, that's uh, how Siri He or she it. will know what you're talking about. Okay, Ellen. It's time for my favorite question. Let me guess. What is the one thing that you would most wish that Christian Trump voters would understand about you or the Catholic community? I mean, I think super conservative evangelicals, um, I understand that they have some respect for Catholics because they look over and see like, oh, they're, they've been committed to, to the pro-life cause actually for even longer than we have. I think what I wish evangelicals understood about Catholics doesn't have a whole lot to do with politics. It's just, you know, the Holy Spirit is actually here. <laughs> I think yeah. we, we really believe in Jesus. We really read the Bible. I mean, yeah, there's Catholics who don't read the Bible. Maybe you don't read it as much. Yeah. <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I mean, we like, we treat the Bible with a lot of respect. It's a huge yeah. part of what the mass is about. Also that I think sometimes there's a misunderstanding about the saints and a yeah. belief that Catholics somehow worship saints in, in place of, in place yeah, of God, worship Mary instead um, of Jesus, which yeah. isn't true. Um, like the saints are partners with us in prayer in the same way that our small group are partners with us in prayer. It's like Mary's in my small group. I can yeah. ask, I can be like, can you pray for me for this? What I wish was understood about Anabaptist faith and theology is that it's not a weak theology. Mm. It's a theology that requires a lot of faith. I remember when my oldest child was a baby and she was sitting on a blanket in the front yard in Atlanta where I lived. And 
my husband is African-American, and we were working in the front yard, and a car drove by that had some white people in it. All of a sudden, they slammed on their brakes. They threw their car into reverse and screeched right back in front of our house and started screaming things at us that were really ugly and mean. And Mennonite that I am, I basically watched myself go pick up a brick and just be super ready to defend my little baby daughter there in case anything escalated. And thankfully, nothing escalated. They screeched off, but there I stood with a brick in my hand, and I looked down at my hand, and I was like, wow, look at that. I did that without even thinking. It was like I was watching myself do that. I can say to you that as somebody who has the history of violence being beaten into my body and the sexual violation and everything that I've been to, I can say to you that my limbic system would have taken over. I'm sure I would have defended. I'm sure I would have thrown a brick. I'm sure I would have done anything. But that's not what my faith is. My faith and my limbic system are two very different things. In that sense, they, they counteract each other. They are in opposition. They're very much in opposition because I'm a human being like anybody else. I would certainly be justified. And I don't think anybody could argue I would be justified in doing whatever I could to, to keep my family safe. But that's not where I land in life. What do you wish that evangelical Christians understood about the Orthodox Church? I think I, I'd love for them to realize that we honor the scriptures so much. And uh, I think sometimes there's an understanding that we don't love the Bible and we don't love Jesus or we don't know Jesus. So I think what I wish the, the folks would understand is that it's a tough thing being an Orthodox Christian in the, in the 21st century, trying to honor what and women, the boys and girls of, of 2,000 years of Christian uh, life, how we're trying to maintain that in the 21st century where everything changes like almost every other week, uh, the values, the ideas, and how we think about Christ, how we worship. You know, to, to look at the, the pictures, the icons we have on the walls, and I think w- without really knowing why they're there, some people become repulsed thinking we're worshiping idols and and to realize that we have a family of origin that goes back to Adam and Eve and, and the family of origin that goes from the time of Christ. And we have these beautiful men and women that lived their life fully in Christ and ran the race and, and did their best to love Christ and be in, in communion with him. So I think I, I love to get across to evangelicals is, is to come and see and, and really, and, and there's a lot of similarities and beautiful things we can learn from each other. Ellen, at one point you blurted out, Mary is my Oprah? What did you mean by that? That was four thoughts after my original thought, which was like, man, she's got so many good little kernels, like aha moments, which brought me to Oprah. Oprah. Yeah. And then I don't need an Oprah, but I'm just saying. But if you need one, it's It's Mary's there. Uh, It's just it's just funny. Like, no matter how many Catholics become my friends or whatever, I just. I'm just constantly reminded that I was raised to believe by some people in my life that Catholics were not Christians. Me too. I don't think my parents, by the way, let me officially put, I think my parents are off the hook for that one. I think I remember correctly, but plenty of teachers. That interview earlier this season was so good. I don't think she has much idea of the things that got into your brain. Or she just doesn't remember them. Yeah. (laughs) 
it's just great it's just so so mary's so mary's answer to that question was like we're actually christians that's yeah. basically her answer well, her and father tom they're like by the way right. we also read the bible and we don't worship saints and icons yeah from tom i got the the, the word i wrote down listening to tom was like just ignorance like it's fine. I don't think that evangelicals are necessarily like on the hook for their ignorance of Greek orthodoxy. It's yeah. more just like pronouncing on it in ignorance. Right. It's one know? thing to just not know anything about sure. it. Like, fine. Jennifer, I don't know anything Jennifer's about faith. I don't yeah. know what a Mennonite and is. I don't know anything about what a ceremony in a mosque is like. I don't know. But I'm right. also not going to say a bunch of things about what happens in a mosque. Right. Because I don't know. Right. Yeah. And there's a big difference. Although I would like to talk a whole episode about Mormonism and what goes on. This, this is like the, this is the true crime part of Ellen. Okay. I'm not Maybe this is what this. I should have my podcast be. Like faith in crime. <gasps> faith in crime. Faith and crime. No, faith in crime. Faith in crime. Oh, faith oh, and crime. Oh, this is crime. the beginning of a very good brainstorm session after we get done recording. Okay. A we can... faith based crime podcast oh man it was a million ideas already okay great well some of the best tuned. crimes were within a faith community by best remember what yeah, we were trying gross. to stay away that's from really saying gross. That's you're really a crime gross lover that. and that that's a freudian slip right yeah. there yeah most juicy juiciest crimes involve juiciest religion crime. is what you're saying that's just i'm i regret saying any of this it stays uh, Jennifer, I just think the only thing to say at this point about Jennifer is that woman she has seen some is sh- a tough lady. She has been through it, man. I just think she's like stronger than I'll ever I mean, be. I'll tell it's you crazy. what, I'm not picturing a bonnet anymore. <laughs> the bonnet like, has been ripped off and replaced and burned. Yeah, oh, man. What a tough lady. She's awesome. There is one thing to there in there, though, that she said that. I have been thinking about this for at least five years of like, what part of Christianity is, is just fighting against our sort of natural human responses. Mm-hmm. You know, like, uh, we would know, you, would you use the term limbic sin, system? sin nature? Yeah. So I, like I don't know how if that's much like an our, evangelical term, like how much of our sinful nature is just like being biologically human Yeah. and, and like how much of the kingdom of God is a rejection of the biological defaults of humanity. For instance, we just talk about tribal thinking, right? So we're, because of the way that humans developed, we naturally worry about people who don't look or sound or smell like us. And that leads to racism, which leads to violence. That leads to killing a bunch of Chinese railroad workers. It leads to slavery. Some part of being a Christian is rejecting the default tribal concern you know, caring only for people who look like us and not caring for people who don't look like us. Which is hard, which is why Christianity should be hard. Yes, right. So it's just interesting that she's talking about limbic system and like protecting her daughter, this like very primal thing. And I, but I, it made me think of like, there's a lot of ways in which I think Christianity is essentially where the, the practice of Christianity is identifying parts of our limbic system or other biological systems, psychological systems whose defaults need to be resisted in order to be like Christ. So I don't know. I don't have a solution for that, but it's something I've been kicking around for a long time. And and her answer made me think of that. (laughs) 
You know, Ellen, sometimes I feel kind of cheesy asking people what they love about America. Do you feel that way? I don't ask people what they love about America. <laughs> well, okay, fair enough. I don't know who you enough. think I am, Dan. Well, I mean, I'm, I ask them for the... I don't ask them just in day to day. I don't just go... On 4th of July, I don't just grab another hot dog and go, Hey, Uncle Hal, what do you love about America? You know what? I, but I bet... I 100% bet you would. I might now. That sounds now like it's a great idea. Do. I'd be like, you know what my... It's something that my dad would do, like... You know, everyone's having a good time and mingling. And then my dad's like, hey, everybody, you know, just one second. I just thought it'd be good to go around. Like, everyone say something they love yeah, about America. Yeah, or when you're shopping, you know, you're like, you know what? I'm going to be, I'm going to ask the sales clerk how they're doing. You ever do that? Yes. Yeah. They always say, how are you? You know, did you find everything well, how okay? How are you? How are you? How are you? Yeah, I'm fine. How's your day going? What do you love about America? <laughs> 25 year old girl that works at Zara It's like Memorial Day weekend sale Like she's working an 18 hour Sweating. shift <laughs> You know what ma'am I don't love America Right now that would be awesome Anyway I I, uh, I felt kind of cheesy Asking people in these interviews I don't ask them in my daily life But I've actually found these answers really interesting This has actually been a, a Uniquely interesting and surprisingly interesting Part of the show for me Be honest has been, this podcast is a little bit therapeutic for you it's, In a lot of it's ways. It's a lot therapeutic for me. This podcast is basically me sitting around last summer and going, what do I want to learn about? Like, what am I What do I love about my... America? No. <laughs> what am I tearing my brain apart over? And it's all these questions. So it's totally therapeutic. And you made other people go through it for you. Yes. With me, you mean. So it has been interesting. And we're now going to ask this question, uh, Mary and Jennifer... And then we're going to get a longer clip with Father Tom. And again, this was another one of those answers that went a direction I did not anticipate. So it seems like playing it is worthwhile. So here we go, starting with Mary, what she loves about America. I love our history of religious tolerance. And that's still here. I mean, I, don't, I think if I lived in Poland or Germany for me to convert to Catholicism at age 30 and then turn right back around and marry a Presbyterian like yeah. would have been a lot more fraught That's but in America especially on the west coast you know hmm. people are just go for it um you so do it, you, you do you do I do me <laughs> and I love the way that we've nurtured creativity um, in through entrepreneurship and business and technology I think We've done amazing things in in science and technology, in art, in music. I think our cultural contributions to the world have been amazing. What I love about America is that it keeps trying. Yeah. It keeps trying to perfect itself. It keeps trying to do better and be better. It keeps trying to live up to its ideals. I love Frederick Douglass's quotation that the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. Just last week, I was in New York visiting my daughter, who's going to grad school. And one of my former students was up from Atlanta working working a, a steel workers union job that he'd been sent up to New York to do. So he and I got together in Harlem. And I hadn't seen him since 1988, 89. We did not have a good relationship back when I was his teacher. But here we were all these years later, and he's done something magnificent with his life. He turned his life over to God. He accepted Christ as his savior, and after barely surviving, growing up in the housing projects that fed into the school where I was teaching, and just the mess that his life was in terms of the addiction, the drug dealing, the sexual molestation, all of it, 
and that he today is stable. He's a union guy. He helps build the skylines of major cities like Atlanta and New York is nothing short of a miracle and what Jesus can do in our one life that we live. That to me is, that's the promise of, of America, that this student and I, with all the history that not only we each had in our own individual lives, all the trauma and the violence that we each had been through in our own lives, but just the history of his ancestral lineage from slavery onward, my ancestral lineage from the brave pioneers onward, that all of that could amalgamate and come into this moment where we could sit there and have that wonderful conversation for a couple of hours and that everything from the past that I could make amends to him, he made amends to me, which I didn't really feel I needed, but it was kind of him. But to do that, That's what makes America great. What do I love about America? It's a beautiful country. You know, that's funny that I'm kind of caught for words right now. That's okay. Can you describe what's happening in your mind, like why that... Yeah, because I think I switch... I think America is this dichotomy that we're supposed to be free in this country and look at Christmas time, we're supposed to be beautiful and really celebrate Jesus' birth and really preparing our hearts to receive the Lord so I, I love this country, but I see this this pull of a consumerism thing that happens where I think when I'm in Greece, it's very simple, and people live off the land, and at least my the village that I go to and the islands I go to. So I think when you ask me that question, I, I want to say it's, it's a beautiful country, it's a beautiful landscape, it's beautiful people, as there are anywhere. And then I want to say it's a free country. And then I think I caught in my mind saying... I think we're enslaved in this country. Enslaved to what? Enslaved to this this mechanism, this moving and churning that we become consumers rather than being in communion. We're, we're fragmenting and disengaging and creating more isolation. I think this country is the most, we're becoming most addicted, overindulged, overeating country in the world and we have freedom. So I think when you ask that question, I got caught because I wanted to say to whoever's listening to this that Father Tom Sagalagis loves America. And I do, but I, I got caught thinking like, shoot, man, I think we're creating slavery here. Yeah, there's different kinds of freedom. Yeah. There's uh, freedom to and freedom from is one yeah. of the distinctions that I've heard. So we have a lot of freedom to in America. Right. Um, but... What does it take to get freedom from, you know, right. freedom from our own consumer lifestyles or et cetera? I mean, we're, we're pretty low on the totem pole in that regard. I think so, Dan. I think when you see freedom, you know, we have the freedom to buy what we want, go wherever we want. And, and for me, freedom is, is, is having the absence of fear mm. to truly be free and to have peace. Peace and fear can't coexist in so many more people. I'm seeing young kids not having peace, living in fear and anxiety. And I'm thinking... What are we doing in America that's, that's creating that? Because it's, it's, it's robbing life of, of you and me and others. We're only free in as much as we become the person that God created us to be. Like that tree in back of me has 100% freedom because the freedom it has to do is, is inherently designed in the photosynthesis process. Mm. It takes in light, carbon dioxide, and it gives you and me oxygen. That's what it does naturally. 
And as human beings, we don't naturally love. We have to learn and really have discipline to love and have compassion and discipline and to pray, discipline to walk the life of Christ. Yeah. I don't know about you, uh, Ellen, or or fellow listener, but I went on a bit of an emotional roller coaster there. I saw you crying a little bit. No, I was not <laughs> crying. I mean, it'd be fine if I was, but I was not. Uh, early on, <laughs> listening to Mary and Jennifer, the thing I wrote on my notes was, "It's okay to love the USA." <laughs> did you draw? Did you do a little flag? No, I just I did exclamation point! I, I saw you over there saluting point. and crying. Oh my gosh! Stop it. <laughs> I was downright inspired yeah. by uh, Mary and Jennifer, and then Father Tom brought me back down to earth. Yeah. He did say that he loves America, but he's also like... But he's also very good to point out, like, he escapes to Greece. He gets away <laughs> to Greece sometimes. Uh, you know, he's Greek, so he's probably got family there and whatnot. But he sees a different way of life, and, and he also acknowledged the very Christian claim, by the way, that... Every country has millions of good people as long as there are millions of people. People are valuable no matter where they live. And we can get caught up in a kind of national nationalism and prioritizing of our own country at the expense of other of God's children. And we, we have to be careful about that. But yeah, it's just it's kind of it's kind of funny. Like I was up the roller coaster and then back down with Tom. I guess it's good. It's, it's good. both are true, right? Both things are true. So it is okay to love your country, but it's also good to I think Father Tom might be more therapeutic to you than almost anything else this whole season. I really just, I live like... You should go to Greece with him. Eight minutes from his church. I should hang out. Vacation with him. He can just talk to you out on a boat. You guys can eat sardines. Wow. You would get so sunburned. Uh, you think I should invite myself along on Father yeah. Tom's next trip back to Greece? Yeah, I want to go. I, I loved what Jen said about, I'm already calling her Jen. Maybe that's not appropriate. I love what Jennifer that's said um, when she said, I like that America keeps trying, keeps trying. Yeah. which reminds mm. me of that quote that says, failure is not the opposite of success. It's part of success because you hmm. cannot succeed without knowing failure. And what I try to remember is, you know, the, this whole concept of like two steps forward, one step back. And, you know, with all the technology and media that we have, everyone all over the place is always saying, how did our world get this way? What world do we live in? It's so bad. And it's just like, well, it's kind of bad, but mm. it's, you know, don't forget about the crusades. I mean, it's like, it's the been, plague. it's been yeah. worse, Yeah. but also maybe this is a huge awakening for many people to whether be get getting more involved but just to understand that there are other people hmm. that are not that don't think like you and and don't don't have the same struggles as uh, you do and they are their life is just as valuable and that as someone that has like a huge life ethic like that's the most crucial thing i think that we can learn hmm. Well, Ellen, it's time for our last question, but not just our last question of this episode, but our last question of this season. Is that why you were crying? Maybe that's why I was crying. <laughs> and we'll we'll give ourselves a little time to say goodbye for the break. But our last question to our voters is, as you look around your community and America in general, what are you most afraid of? We're going to end with the fear question. I think I'm most afraid of the division that I see between 
people who live in major urban areas and people who live outside. So just the fact that there seems to be so little conversation between those worlds because there don't seem to be platforms where that conversation can happen. You know, we have separate news sources. We don't believe in the legitimacy of each other's news sources. Where can we talk to each other? We go to different churches. I think I'm grateful for my small group because there actually is some political diversity there. But I know the conservatives in that group feel like they're in a weird place here in Northeast Seattle. The cities need the, you know, need the country and the country needs the cities. We need each other. You can't have a society. You can't extricate from each other. I think to have had an African-American president and a female president back to back was too much for some segments of our society. Okay. So I think we're just in a backlash right now. I have hope that we will continue our trajectory forward, upward, ever striving to be the nation we profess ourselves to be. I'm not worried, actually. Mm. <laughs> I'm actually not worried at all because above and beyond all of this, God is sovereign. I don't fear at all what's to become of us. I've been saying, in a rather sardonic way, with people who've been feeling a lot of um, trepidation about a possible nuclear attack from Mm -hmm. North Korea, I say, well, you know, if that comes to pass, just know I love you. I'm so grateful we got to be in life together. Yeah. I'll see you on the other side. (laughs) That's yeah. That's it's it's okay because we're going we're going to a better place, you know. Mm -hmm. And I'm all right with that. This has been a really tough place to be. It's a really hard place to be, and it's a magnificent place as well. We have wonderful people in the world. We have broken and unconscious people in the world, and. If it's God's will that we all find each other and that we figure it all out and we make a better way forward, then so be it. May God's will be done. Jennifer is a beautiful soul, but I do apologize for ending the season on literally nuclear war. But she seems okay with it, so... (laughs) But but she's upbeat about it. That's such a Mennonite way to think about nuclear war. It's like, well... Whatever. (laughs) Man, what a great season. Ellen, thank you so much for being a part of this. It was mostly a lot of fun. (laughs) Thanks thanks for all the wine, Dan. You're welcome. Uh, Jaffrey and I say you're welcome. That's right. I always say I don't get any money, and I don't get any money, but you have paid me in wine, and I appreciate that. That's true. Ellen gets about... $3.50 $3.50 of wine per episode. Yeah. Worth half it. A bottle. I, worth it. We get cheap wine. Uh, you're definitely worth $3.50 of wine. I guess the, you know, go back, listen to episodes that you didn't catch. If you haven't listened to season one, there's a lot of great episodes there. There's also a lot of episodes I would recommend just picking the ones that seem interesting to you and <laughs> going from there. What a great, what great advice, Dan. I, mean, there's like I bet they wouldn't have thought episodes. of that themselves. There's 40. So... Some people are like completists and they want to start at the beginning. I would not recommend that. I would say they're not in order. Just pick ones that look interesting. They're totally separate from each other. Okay, I see what one. you're saying. That's what I'm it's saying. not like okay, if you want to watch Lost. It's not like Lost, yeah. You can't yeah. just start at no. you know at you season can three. Cherry pick, just find the ones that look interesting to you. And I'm really looking forward to next season. It's not gonna be a huge break between seasons because 
some of the work is already done, but I do want to uh, interview some more people that I have become really interested in since we started working on this season. And so next season is going to be a bit of a hybrid with some episodes of you and I like this season and then some episodes of just me interviewing a person. Like yourself in the mirror. Like me that in the I would mirror love to hear. interviewing myself you on know a what? time I think, delay. I think next season, I think we're going to find Ellen becoming more liberal and more religious. Interesting. That's your that's your yeah. uh, forecast. I hope yep. that that's true. Well, I, I guess I'm showing my cards. I definitely hope you become more religious. I don't really care if you become more liberal, honestly. Uh, again, we would love if you would support the work on Patreon, patreon.com slash depolarize, and join email list dancokewords.com, K-O-C-H, and uh, look for You Have Permission in the fall, and possibly some more Reconstruct episodes. I'm not sure. And possibly a faith-based crime possibly, podcast. Possibly a podcast called Faith in Crime with Ellen Morrow. That's not, a, that's not what it's going to be, but that's the should be. starting seed. I've actually, I really, I've gotten a lot of kind words from people about this season, and it has meant a lot to me to be in touch with people. So also, please feel free to email me, depolarizedpodcast at gmail.com. And, yeah. and if you have any hate mail for me, go ahead and email them to depolarizedpodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> All right, we'll see you guys in a few months. That's Dan, you do not have a beard. (laughs) Wait, no, it would be Dan, you have a beard. Wait. I have a beard. Let's edit this out. (laughs) (laughs) That's for the blooper reel. As you go, fill up your wine glass. Don't judge me. I'm not judging. It is only 5.15 p.m., though. (laughs) I'll let other people judge you if they want.